Hello, everybody. I think we'll get going. I'm happy to introduce today Lenore Asbell, who's visiting us today from the Philadelphia um, Department of Public Health. And she's going to be talking about adolescent STD infections and HIV risk reduction. Uh, Lenore was just saying that she was for years uh, working clinically at, at Drexel, formerly Hahnemann. She's uh, infectious disease trained, adult infectious disease uh, trained, and at this point is devoting most of her time to this specific work. So uh, we're very pleased you uh, came to visit us. She was saying her kid is in school at EU, and she was making a new England tour. So please welcome her. Hi. Thank you very much for having me. And um, I just wanted to sort of put some perspective on um, the study that is handed out in the back so you know exactly why we did it and what was happening and what was going on. And I'm going to start, and I will um, start by saying that I am terribly technologically challenged. So if I have trouble with my slides, I apologize in advance. So some background about what's going on in the United States. And, Note that we actually did this match in about 2010. At the time, there were about 1.1 million people in the United States living with HIV. And as you all know as HIV providers, a significant number of people are unaware of their infection. So that is where we start from. We know that in cities and in many places, there's an increasing number of new infections. Across the United States, actually, the incidence of HIV has pretty much stabilized, but there are certain populations where the rates continue to increase. And they remain highest, and the increase is highest among adolescents and um, young adults. So if you see the highest increase is among individuals age 25 to 34, followed by individuals age 13 to 24. And to us, that is tragic. So also, to put in perspective where I live versus New Hampshire, I just had to sort of go over some of the epidemiology and disease rates. And note that disease rates are only as good as your screening. So although we are number one, we were number one for chlamydia, we do a tremendous amount of screening for chlamydia in the city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia is one of the, it's the fifth largest city in the United States, and it is probably, it always falls between the poorest large city and the second poorest, Detroit. We sort of go back and forth. 26% of our population lives below the poverty level, um, and most of those persons are black um, Americans. And a higher percentage of adolescents are people under the age of 24. So the total population, 26%, is under the poverty level, but about 32% of people under the age of 24 are, live under the poverty level, which, again, is tragic. So we had about 1,353.9 cases per 100,000 of chlamydia. And in New Hampshire, which ranked 50th out of all 50 states, we had about 233 cases of chlamydia per 100,000 population. Again, some of that may not be, that could be just that there's no disease, but it could also be due to the fact that there is a lack of screening of your population. So I just want to make sure that we point that out for everything. 
For gonorrhea, we are about 470 cases per 100,000 population versus 11.2 cases per 100,000 in New Hampshire. That's about 40 times uh, higher rates in our city. And for syphilis, we had really made tremendous progress, not just in the United States, but in the city of Philadelphia. Syphilis rates in um, the early 2000s were at an all-time low across the country. In 2000, and I can't remember the year now, 2003 or 2004, we had 89 cases of infectious syphilis reported in the city of Philadelphia, which is a very low number. We have Last year, we had 289 cases of infectious syphilis reported in the city of Philadelphia, and we have had a continued increase since that low. It's been steady. Most of those cases of syphilis are among men who have sex with men, and about 50 to 60% of those people who identify with syphilis are co-infected with HIV. So we have a very high um, overlap between syphilis and HIV, and that'll come in to play when we talk about the study later in syphilis and its risk for HIV. New Hampshire does have um, about 30 cases per 100,000 population. Oh, ranks 30, 2.7 cases, sorry. So one of the things um, that I wanted to say is although your rates are low, what you have seen in New Hampshire over the past five years and what we had seen was a steady increase. So I got this off of um, information from the state health department and there has been an increase in case counts for chlamydia, for gonorrhea, and newly diagnosed um, HIV infections have been stable. But once we see, and if we look at the, the match that we did, once you start to see an increase in chlamydia, gonorrhea, you too may soon be seeing an increase among adolescents uh, who have HIV. So hopefully that won't happen, but it will. So what happened that made us even look at the risks and think about doing this match that I'm going to present today? So there are several things. We've always had a very strong um, adolescent program. We've had a big focus on adolescents. Adolescents are disproportionately affected with chlamydia. They have been. It was in, I think, the early 90s, uh, the Institute of Medicine. It was the hidden epidemic. And since then, we have had a tremendous focus on that. We really do a tremendous amount of screening. And one of the things in the early 2000s was we instituted a high school screening program. And that high school screening program was key to this ability to do a future match. In addition to that, in 2008, the mayor um, appointed a new health commissioner. This new health commissioner had been an adolescent medicine doctor uh, from CHOP, Don Schwarz. And Don really looked at adolescent health as a primary focus in the health department in the city of Philadelphia. With that, we were able to do some program collaboration and service integration. For anybody in public health, this is sort of a key term and something that is being looked at. For anybody who's done public health for a long time in large cities, STDs have for years been sort of compartmentalized, separate from HIV. So surveillance is often very separate and never the twain shall meet. The CDC has done a large push at making sure that we collaborate 
and that we know what's going on, what those interrelationships are. There were four large cities that got grants. We were one of them. That happened at about the same time. And then the third thing that happened that really spurred us to um, do this match and also to look at this was really there's a focus now. When I started STD prevention, STD prevention or STI prevention was really aimed at infertility prevention, preventing congenital syphilis. We see very little outcomes now. We see much less uh, PID. But really, STD prevention is HIV prevention, probably not so different from what's happening in HIV care, right? So very similar to task tr treatment as prevention, STD prevention is as HIV prevention is the focus of where we started with this. I'm going to get a little bit of water just because I'm a little bit dry. So the STI rates have increased. Before we started the study, what we noticed that was that in Philadelphia, STI rates increased among adolescents. We saw a 16% increase among adolescent girls 15 to 19, and a 20% increase among young boys. Now, I would say that part of that increase and that difference is due to the fact that we started screening more boys as we used more urine-based testing for screening. We found more, but there were certainly increases. And there was also a 10% <coughs> increase among women and men who in a little bit older age group. Additionally, we had an increase, unlike your st stable HIV cases, a 26% increase from 2006 to 2009 among newly diagnosed HIV patients. I mean, that's huge. And a 33% increase among 20 to 24 year olds. So again, some of this increase is probably due to increased testing, um, hopefully, People are following the CDC uh, guidelines and the new United States Public Health uh, Task for guidelines about routine screening. So potentially, if routine screening increased, some of that increase in newly diagnosed case was due to that. But I don't think that it was all because of that. We also had the Youth Risk Behavioral Survey. Um, and I don't know how many people are aware of what that is, but that survey is done throughout cities and um, high schools in the, city, uh, in the United States. They get, ask high schools to participate. And it is a study that is redone every two years, looking at changes in behavior. Locally, you can add questions. So we always try to ask them to ask some <coughs> STD questions in addition to ones they ask across the United States. But some of the things that we looked at, we are not proud. Um, in Philadelphia, but was that we had very high risk-taking adolescents. Sixty-four percent of our adolescents in the high school had ever had sex. Fifteen percent had ever had sex before the age of 13, and 26 percent had four or more lifetime partners by the, before they graduated high school or at the time of the study. So these are ninth graders through 12th graders. So I'm sure that not all of them were 12th graders who answered that. Um, and 47% were remained or were at the time currently sexually active. Uh, again, at the same time, we saw a huge increase in gonorrhea. I would like to point out that that increase, we looked 
every which way to figure out why we had a 38% increase in gonorrhea this year. So it was from 2009 to 2010. And we could not find increased reporting or increased testing or any reason to explain why there was such an increase in gonorrhea other than there was a true increase in gonorrhea. So it wasn't like we didn't look to see, because a lot of times we expect that when you see such a huge increase, it's due to some reporting problem or something like that, but it did not seem to be that way. And we did see a decrease in um, syphilis at that point, but it was a 21% increase. It was just a very small number, and we've seen an increase again over the past four years. Um, and we did also see that there were that adolescents made up a tremendous portion of newly reported HIV cases. So our concern was if STI rates are increasing across the city and across the United States, and this could herald an increase in HIV epidemic. And so we wanted to see how we could identify people in a before we really wanted to have a crystal ball. What would tell us who was at risk so we could do some targeted intervention? Um, we all wish we had these, right? So we knew, you know, and these are fairly obvious. We know that there are biological connections between STIs. We know that having an STI increases both the rate of acquisition and transmission of, of HIV. We knew that they were markers. But what we didn't know was on a population basis, a, a certain population basis, what that risk was. And so what we wanted to do um, was to determine, how, to, to figure this out. And so one of the things, there's a challenge doing this using only population-based data unless you have um, sort of a narrower, narrower high-risk population. And one of the things, reasons is because the HIV incidence over the United States is um, fairly low. So what we did was we had a large um, database that included adolescents because of our high school screening program, which I will uh, explain in a few slides. And we were able to focus on adolescents and see what the relative risk was. So we wanted to know whether somebody with an STD or STI was more likely to become HIV infected later, as opposed to at the same time. And we do know that there is a very high likelihood of people becoming infected with their first STD and HIV at the same time. And also, are adolescents with multiple STDs more likely to have an HIV test? So let me explain what happened and what we did in Philadelphia starting in 2000. And this is the, H the STD um, high school screening program. In about 2000, we had very high rates, and we decided to go into every public high school in the city of Philadelphia. We actually wanted to go into targeted high-rate schools, and we were told we couldn't target, so we said we can either have all or nothing, we'll take all. And we went into, at the time, there were 53 high schools in the city of Philadelphia, and we offered STD screening. Um, and the way we did that was, um, people go into the high school and they, the first thing that happens is there's a short educational program. And this educational presentation changed over years. We tried to educate people about STDs and 
gonorrhea and chlamydia, what the symptoms were, how they would get it, really do some sex education. There was no retention. So people just had, it's a one-time 15, 20 minute presentation. We would bring the people in who tested positive or we'd, they'd call for their test results and they would have no idea what they really were testing for. So we really changed the presentation over the years aimed at getting people to test because we felt that as the health department we couldn't really do education in that scale. But what we could do was get people tested and treated and hopefully remove them from the pool and prevent sequelae. So hopefully the goal was to decrease prevalence in the population. It did not work. Um, and to decrease sequelae. So what happens is everybody gets a bag, they sit down, they see this presentation in the bag. It's an information sheet which contains basic demographic information. It does not include who they're having sex with or um, how many partners. It includes where they live, their age, uh, basically what grade they're in, etc. And in a way that we can contact them. They also have a urine cup. We send everybody to the bathroom. They decide whether to participate in this screening by either giving us urine or not giving us urine. So everybody has to hear the presentation, but they don't, it's voluntary in that they can choose not to participate by not giving us urine. I will tell you, this comes up all of the time. Um, we had an opt-out policy for parents. So at the beginning of the year, every parent in the school district got a letter so they could opt their child out of participating. Um, we never got a single letter back. Uh, and we sent out a lot of letters. The school district actually sent them out for us. So again, we did that testing. And initially, we did see a decrease in the positivity rate. But over time, it has not maintained itself. So um, there are many reasons for that, many reasons that people do not only have sex with people they have, are in school with. And we only treat on one day um, in each individual school. There probably are ways uh, from a public health way to decrease those rates. If you could do sort of massive screening in a much shorter period of time. But when you're going to one high school, over a time, you're not really decreasing it in the population in a concentrated enough way to decrease those rates. So all of those tests, positive and negative, went, to, went into our STD surveillance database. So we have a very large STD surveillance database. Um, and it has, at this point, about 560,000 patients patient-centered. And primarily, like most surveillance databases, it includes positive reports. You have a positive test, it gets reported to the health department, and that's how it, you end up in there. But there were very few negatives. We would have had no control group, except for the fact that among adolescents, and a huge percentage of the adolescents <laughs> in Philadelphia, had been tested by us. And then we were able to enter both positive and negative tests into our database. And we had the basic demographics, like I said before, entered into that database. We also had the HIV surveillance database. And so this is where the pixie comes in. We didn't always, yes? Did you have a question? Oh. Um, we also had um, the HIV surveillance database. And this is where pixie comes into play, because 
before Pixie and maybe before the new health commissioner, we didn't always play so well together, um, STD control and HIV control, but we were really all willing to work on um, doing this and to try to figure out what was going on together. And the HIV database uh, is all reports of HIV, either positive Western blot, viral load testing, physician reports. The problem is in Philadelphia, one of the problems is that we did not have name based reporting into, until 2005 for HIV. So there was name-based reporting for AIDS, but not name-based reporting for HIV. We have subsequently gone back with name-based reporting. So every viral load is reported, every and then what they have done is they've tried to make sure that the first HIV test for anybody who subsequently named is then put into the database. And, and they did a lot of work when they moved to name-based reporting to beef up the database, EHARS, to make it really inclusive. Um, it will not include people who only have rapid, it may not. It should include people who only have rapid tests, but um, rapid testing sites don't always report to the HIV database, and it's not counted as it necessarily as a case. So is all, all the reporting other than rapid tests done by the lab? Yeah, all, um, all labs are reporting. We have, as I said, clinicians are mandated to report. We have very little, man, very little clinician reporting. I am actually glad we do not have clinicians report chlamydia. We would be doing nothing other than answering the phone. So that's all data dumped into our systems. Um, for syphilis, I think we still get a lot of, because we call everybody, so often we'll know from the lab about a syphilis test at the same time or before the clinician. So we actually pick up the phone and we call and we get information, but it is 99% of our reports are um, data, right, are lab-based. And I will tell you, for syphilis it becomes a little bit more difficult because somebody could have had a history of syphilis, we have a lab test, and if you don't have a clinician, so we really do call anybody where it's suspicious. Um, we have a lot of people who do follow up on syphilis reports. Okay. So then we, I did not talk about that. We also, the other database we used, and this was just to eliminate people, was death certificate data. So in addition to the STD surveillance database and the HIV surveillance database, we did match all of the cases to the death certificate data because we figured we wanted to eliminate anybody who had died in the 14 weeks after their first STD test because they would not have had time to develop or to become positive subsequently and end up in our HIV database. And the reason we chose 14 weeks was there is a lag between actually having a test and ending up in the database for HIV. We have a much shorter lag in the STD database, but I think everything is um, much more, um, they carefully check to make sure that there's no issues with the HIV database. So our cohort were all individuals born between 1985 and 1993, but at least one STD test in our public, in our um, high school screening program from 2003 to 2010, and that was about 90,000 tests, but those individuals that got limited to about 75,273 individuals who were born in that time and had a positive, uh, had a test, not a positive test. 
in that time. And the reason we limited it to that age cohort was because then they were more likely to have at least one test, so probably more than one test. I just, I want to point out, this represents about 40% of 11 to 19 year olds in Philadelphia that were screened or tested. But when we look back, I think it's, the, I will say, this 90,000 number represents 40%. I think the 75,000 individuals is about 36 or 33%. I think I have another slide on that. Okay. So what they then did was they matched all of those people, the 75,000 people, to the HIV database. And, uh, these are where my statisticians and my epidemiologists come in and they do great work. And they use probabilistic, uh, deterministic data in order to match them. And they did it based on name, alias, date of birth, and sex. Any match that scored high was automatically accepted. And any mid-range match was individually um, reviewed by two reviewers. And if they thought it was a match after reviewing it, both of them agreed, then we counted it in the match. Uh, as we are um, working to improve our database and we are moving to a new database and trying to deduplicate data, I will tell you that it is very difficult to deduplicate data and to do these matches. There are twins whose names are you know, one letter off and we may have matched somebody. In fact, we know we matched somebody um, recently, we now match every GC, positive GC case every week. We match them to the HIV database for partner services. And um, we matched a twin. We thought a twin had had a previous HIV report. And we went out to do an interview. But their name was off by one letter. So it is difficult. So there could always be a few errors um, in that way. And then again, we matched it to the um, death certificate data to eliminate anybody who had died in the 14 weeks after. So what was considered an STD positive? It's only reported diseases. So trach, herpes, all of that stuff is not reportable. But it included chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis reports. And um, STD negative was if they never had a positive report of any of those. So again, positive report was you had to have had a test in the high school screening program and then any test at anywhere that was reported positive in our database. And an HIV positive report we already discussed could be reported by a provider or <laughs> most likely lab reported. And what we did then was we limited the HIV tests to somebody where their first HIV test in the HIV database was subsequent to the first STD test in our data system. They did a descriptive analysis, um, and I'll show you the cohort. And then they did a bivariate analysis looking at STD versus HIV, and then a multivariate analysis taking in race and age, um, and they did not include uh, gender in the multivariate analysis because they stratified by gender. And when you look at the data, when I show you the data, you'll see why. Males and females were completely different in their risk. Um, and we did try to assess other potential confounders and effect mod modifiers. So now that we've done the match, we've stratified them 
by race and, you, and by gender, and you can see that a little over 50% of our cohort is male. And the reason that 50% of our cohort is male is because more men, for some reason, more men screened in the high school screening program than women, and I suspect that part of that is because men have no other place to screen often. Women are screened in many other places. There's family planning clinics. So really, this was a place for young men to get tested, where they didn't have as many places to get tested um, otherwise, except for STD clinics. And then, but it was close. When we look at it, it was about 68% black. And that is about what the high school population is. So this very much represented the high school population in the city of Philadelphia, but did not necessarily represent the adolescent population. Um, when we look at the adolescent population in the city of Philadelphia, it's probably closer to 50%. Black, a lot of um, people who have means do not use the public schools in the city of Philadelphia. The school system is in shambles. The birth cohort was fairly evenly distributed across the ages, and you can see part of that is the younger people may not have made it into high school yet. Um, and then older people, we have a lot of people who drop out of high school uh, fairly young. The age at the first STD test, again, most people tested in the 14 to 16 year old age range at their first test, and that's not necessarily when their first positive was, but it is the age of their first STD test. I should say that although about 68% of the um, population was black, positives, it was about 80% were black. So in the model, again, when they did it, they did control for age. And this, it did, this is the slide. I don't know why it came out this way. It did not look like this. Um, on my other computer. But um, when we look at it, there's about, of the 36,000 females, about 11,000 of them, or about 33, 12, almost 12,000 of them, about 33% had at least one positive STD during that um, time period. And if we look at the males, again, it's only about 13% had at least one positive STD during that time period. We've, um, there are probably a lot of reasons. There are probably biological reasons why women are more at risk. They also get tested more frequently. Um, in addition, when, I try to think about this a lot. When we do high school screening, we're doing point prevalence. I think women tend to be infected over a longer period of time than men, so men are infected potentially for sure. They clear their infection more rapidly. So if you're doing high school screening, you're only going in once to any one school. The prevalence at that moment, or the point prevalence, is probably somewhat lower in men. When we look at our high school screening program, there's always a huge disparity between positivity rate between women and men. So then we looked at STI reports. And you can see that um, there were multiple with people who tested negative, thankfully, um, for all STDs. Uh, but we can see that the numbers decreased uh, as the multiple infections. So only about 7% only um, had three or more STD um, chlamydial infections. 
and really only about 1.3% of boys. And again, you can see for gonorrhea, um, only about 2% of women had more than two infections and about less than 1%. And this is just, I just um, put in some of the numbers for syphilis. Syphilis is the rates among women were very low, 0.1%. And this is probably driven, and as I said before, the, the syphilis epidemic in the city of Philadelphia, like it is among many places in the United States, is driven primarily by men who have sex with men, so our rates among men are much higher. That being said, in the past three months, we've had a bump in our number of cases among young women. We have um, had three congenital syphilis cases reported in the city of Philadelphia since the beginning of the summer. And um, unfortunately, uh, I think we had less than 12 cases among women. And we've had 19 cases among women under the age of 24 just in the past three months. So for HIV reports, um, there were about 49 among women and 199 among men. Again, probably driven potentially by uh, MSM. We know that they are the highest, um, most affected group among adolescents in the city of Philadelphia. But what we also looked at was you know, the time in the study. Do they have time to become positive? And the average time in the study for both groups was about 5.2 years. So they did have time to become and these were all subsequent infections. And again, I just wanted to point out, this was, this, um, the cohort is about 20 or 30% of the population in the city of Philadelphia. And I have to say that I don't know how they calculated this because it is impossible to get census data that's easy over a time period. Um, but they did, they worked at some average over the 2000 and census in the 2010 census and um, figured out the average population among 11 to 19 year olds was at 129 versus 121,000. This is based initially off the 2000 uh, census data. And you can see the rates for all of the STDs in the cohorts. So what did we see? Um, it's not as bright as I would have hoped, but what did we see? If you were a woman and you ever had an STD, okay, and that's all comers, one, two, three, this includes again gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis, you had a 2.6 relative risk of becoming HIV positive, or, and I should say, ending up in the HIV database subsequent to our first uh, STD test, was about 2.3 a relative risk for young men. And you can see subsequently, if you only had one to two infections for chlamydia with slight relative risk, 1.5%. But if you had three STDs, you were five times more likely to end up in our HIV database. Again, pretty impressive. That's for all STDs. About the same for men and women. Men were a little bit lower. I'm not sure I understood this why the chlamydia, I'm not exactly sure why that risk was lower for multiple, but the risk for having chlamydia in a young man um, did not seem to be as great as some of the others, or 
Um, but chlamydia, even three chlamydia infections among young women raised your rate relative risk by about five times. And gonorrhea, one episode of gonorrhea, so they talk sometimes about gonorrhea as being the gateway infection or a gateway infection for HIV. One episode of gonorrhea made, increased your relative risk by 3.4 times and about 3.3 for young men. Any questions? Because this is the slide that always messes me up. So syphilis was not a risk factor for HIV in females, but there were 61 males in our cohort who were diagnosed with syphilis during the study period, and 15 of those males with syphilis had ended up having a subsequent HIV infection. The relative risk in a young man for syphilis was 35 times, and it's incredible, or not incredible. So just to sort of discuss what it showed was that teens with positive STD with either gonorrhea, chlamydia, or syphilis are at greater risk of a subsequent HIV infection. The risk for subsequent HIV infections increases pretty much, except for that chlamydia, with multiple STDs. Um, for girls, having increased history of gonorrhea and chlamydia was definitely a bigger risk. And for boys, the risk was so much more associated with gonorrhea and syphilis and not really as closely associated with chlamydia. So not all who developed HIV had a history of gonorrhea. There were people who were negative. Um, one third of the males had no history in our database and 22% of the females had no history. So they were negative and they, didn't, they still ended up in our database. So we will not identify everybody with this. The risk of subsequent in HIV infection among boys, again, is, as I said, was substantial. Um, one of the reasons that I put this in and that we don't discuss this as much in the paper is this association may be less reliable. It's not about the syphilis, but it's about being MSM and how um, common HIV is among the adolescent population of MSM. So we asked some additional questions. Do those with HIV infection reported before any STD have higher STD risks than those without? And we, I think we answered that. And um, we also want to know what factors were associated with STDs among only those who have HIV reported. So we have some additional data, race, ethnicity, and STD history um, in some of those people. And we did see that being black, being poor, um, definitely increased your risk. Uh, so what are some of the strengths? We had a very large data set. So unlike a lot of other populations um, where they've looked at this, they didn't have as many people that had both positive and negative tests. Our case confirmation is reliable. It's based on objective laboratory results. These are all, like you said before, they're all laboratory reports. And we know who was screened because we screened them. What it is not is it is not representative of all adolescents in Philadelphia. As I mentioned, this is only representative of people who attend public high school. It does exclude those who never agreed to be screened. 
It does exclude people who did not show up to school. So it may be that the most disenfranchised and highest risk students were never screened, right? Because they did not show up, they did not go to class. So it may either overestimate or underestimate your risk because we do know that there is a population that does not get tested. We know also that we may have missed some HIV reports, although since we're looking at subsequent <coughs> reports to this, we should have, or we may have been including people also who had a previous HIV test and then only ended up in the database with name-based reporting. So some of these people may have actually been HIV infected before, but not in the name-based data set, depending on how they did the match. Um, again, the actual date of HIV infection isn't known because it's a surveillance database. It's only based on when the test is done. Um, if people don't get tested, it doesn't tell about when they developed their infection. So what we don't know and what would be nice is to test everybody in the high school screening program or every adolescent at the time of a positive STD. And while we know many people get tested at the time of their positive STD, many people do not get tested at that time. So if they happen to walk into my clinic or an STD clinic, we routinely test everybody. You, know, you, you touch the door, we offer you an HIV test. In fact, we probably over-test. Um, but that's not true in primary providers' offices. Uh, they do not like to often discuss HIV testing, even if they have a subsequent uh, positive chlamydia test. So it may be that for some people, the time of acquisition of infection of HIV was not subsequent, but at the time of their STD infection. And we really have no risk factor data except on positives. And even that data is very limited. So it's really just a population-based survey. We'd like to know whether um, certain STDs are more highly associated. We sort of think that gonorrhea is more so, uh, uh, associated from our data so far. And do adolescents with STDs get HIV more quickly? So we have not been able to do a time analysis. And that's one of the other things that we're talking about doing is a time analysis, what it means time-wise. But what we did do was we tried to develop interventions that could decrease STI rates and impact, therefore, on HIV rates. And it allows us, hopefully, to identify adolescents at increased risk. So we, the first thing we did was we disseminated the information, we published some data, and we used this data locally. How did we use this data locally? Uh, one of the things we did was we started a large condom campaign. So we uh, now do mail me condoms to anybody 11 to 19 living in Philadelphia. They can go online and order condoms. We've increased this. Just in the beginning portions of this, we were able to not mail condoms to 916 individuals. We've added condom distribution sites across the city of Philadelphia. We, um, they're available, you can, there's a con, where's my condom app or something like that. I don't remember exactly what it's called. <laughs> that you can do so. Adolescents who are much better at using their smartphone can find it. We also, in order to increase uptake of condom distribution, um, through the mail among adolescents as we did targeted Facebook ads 
to adolescents and hopefully just decreasing STD rates hopefully will have some impact. And what we did was we looked, this is the YRBSS data, and this is when we started the condom campaign. We did get a little bit of flack um, when we went down to 11. So we tried um, to, uh, to start at 12, but the 11 really caused people to, to balk a little bit, especially since the age of assent in, is, I think, 12. Um, the age of consent, I think, is 16. And we did have distributed 10 million condoms um, since the program launched. 20,000 were requested by mail uh, and over 180 now condom sites. We also put condom dispensers in the high school. And you can see we had an increase in STDs in gonorrhea and a decrease. And this is my division director's favorite graph. She really, really wants this condom distribution program to be uh, the key. I do not think it is the only key, but it is certainly important, and we have seen a decrease. So while we see increases in other um, populations of gonorrhea, so our rates have increased among slightly older, among adolescents in that 11 to 19 year old age group, we have seen a decrease. I'm a little skeptical. We saw a decrease after high school screening too, so I don't want to get too excited too soon. I'd like to see that curve go down a little bit, you know, for a little bit longer. You can see it's very similar for chlamydia. Again, this is just um, the pre and post intervention. It's a little soon, but we did see a 33% decline in um, teen gonorrhea and, 18, um, and a 13% decline in teen chlamydia. Subsequently, the other thing we did was we used this risk factor data to target interventions among adolescents who came into the clinic. So um, the HIV program contracted with an adolescent program at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia to provide enhanced counseling. So in my STD, in the STD clinics in the city of Philadelphia, we have merged data. So our currently, our um, data includes, our summary medical record includes not only the tests that they've had at the STD clinic, but all reportable STDs. So when somebody comes in, if they were tested someplace else and they had not been treated, we have the ability to treat them. It is our job to, as public health to treat all of any positive that has not been treated so that we have that data. So we are then able to say, oh, you've had three episodes of chlamydia, identify them, send them to the social worker, and intervene, and then send them subsequently to this adolescent initiative. This adolescent initiative program, again, is run by CHOP, and they do a great job. And this is a quote from what they do. Their major focus is prevention in the community setting. And what they did was um, they actively call these teenagers on a regular basis. So if we've identified, they, it's not huge numbers, thankfully, but every week they're in touch with somebody either by phone or um, text. And really, we know that single-time interventions do nothing for decreasing um, and changing behavior. But it's really multiple um, connections with somebody 
that have shown. So all of the DEBIs or data-based interventions um, that have shown to work are multiple and to, to have any long-lasting effects over time. And so it's one person who goes and they make it. The first year, we referred 27 uh, people from the clinic into the program. Last year, 47 in, uh, in 2013, 42, 35 female and about seven male. They provided 121 face-to-face -face interventions for th in 2013, 4,000 um, texts and phone calls. Um, and all of the men who were referred are MSM who have had syphilis. And then I'd just like to thank the people who were really instrumental in getting all of this done. The first person was Don Schwartz, who was our um, Deputy Mayor of Health and Opportunity and our Health Commissioner. He has since moved on and we have a new Health Commissioner. And at the time, Jane Baker, Kathleen Brady, and Michael Everhart at the um, AIDS Activity Coordinating Office. And in my division, Greta Anschutz, who is my data person, extraordinaire. She is our surveillance coordinator and Claire Newburn who is our um, head of epidemiology, the epidemiology unit for the whole division of disease control. Carolyn Johnson, uh, Melinda Salmon, and Andrew Delos Reyes who all worked with me. Does anybody have any questions? I know. Thank you first. <laughs> Oh, so in the high schools, we can't, so we yeah. do very, yes, absolutely. I know, because we do, we screen at every, um, this is one of my favorite things to talk about, is that absolutely, we will miss about 52% of um, gonorrhea or chlamydia infections if you only do urogenital screening. And we know that, and we are very limited. We cannot do any invasive testing. I'm sure that if we did self-collected throat tests, and in community-based organizations, we're able to do that. If we can get them, we, one of the other things that we do do in the presentation is encourage people to come to the clinic if they have risk for something else, if they have a rash, if they have a symptom, if they need to be screened in another site. So we hope that we get those people to come into a site where they can get screened at all of their exposure sites, but I am sure that we are missing MSM. I know recently, on the screening that we've done, just in the, like we were just noticing over the last couple months, all the positives have been either throat or rectal. And on all those people, with a negative urine. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. At all of them. Yeah. I'd I don't say. Think we've had any positive urine? But we've had a bunch of. I mean, we're talking small numbers here, but just it, it was. It just was a really nice illustration. And we did it for about a year, and we found we'd miss about fifty percent of infections if we only did your genital. When we look at it, I think we have about a twenty percent overlap people who have either a throat or a rectal out of and this is from clinic data, and you know, we see, I don't know how many MSM we see, again, a month, it seems to be increasing, yes. The number of chlamydia infections is so high <laughs> um, in your data set, and first of all, I mean, this is, it's wonderful to see what public health can do but it makes you wonder 
is it high enough to really think about mass treatment? Okay, so working to, but I, I actually, I mean, when you think about disease intervention, really chlamydia, <laughs> if we could do mass treatment, there, you know, it would be pretty incredible, right? If you give everybody a, a gram of azithromycin, what's the likelihood, you know, we'd have some, you know, um, threatening um, diarrhea, we'd have a lot, you know, some crampy belly pain. But if you could do, even if we could shorten the period of time, right? that we did screening and treatment, we would probably have more of an effect. We, we just do not have the resources to do that. I mean, there's no way, I mean, we have talked about mass trading, you know, that's never gonna fly, right? But to shorten the period, to really do it intense, because if you removed people in a much shorter period of time from the infectious pool, you'd really have a, a much greater likelihood of making an indent in the population. I mean, you can't close the borders, you know, the high schools, you can't choose. We know that people, we did a lot of other um, data analyses among high school screening and kids who were screened in the high school. So we know that the highest risk of an STD infection are people who choose their partners outside of their high school. So choosing your, part, not, not even age, but choosing your partner at a place other than your high school put you at much higher risk for developing an STD. So even if we only treated it in high schools, we wouldn't be able to eliminate it. But if you did it over a massive, a shorter period of time, you'd certainly affect you know, that whole equation. Yes? So to push that a little further, I think you're alluding to the fact that there are probably a couple of hot spots here. One is the high-end disenfranchised either are very often not at school or they're very little. I agree. Uh, and then the MSF group. Uh, so what, what in the city, what are you guys <clears throat> thinking creatively about accessing and trying to I like that question. Okay, so we have, I like, that's a good question. Um, so it's, I'm not sure I have the answer to the dropout, disenfranchised. Um, it's very, very difficult. We did try things like a mobile unit. We, we had very little success. It, it was a bust. You know, we thought, you know, the highest risk people, we sent people out on street corners, places where people hung out. We had very little effect. But there are places, so for young MSM, um, there are ways and there are places where people congregate. Um, in addition, we are developing a new website. We have a teen website um, called Take Control Philly. There is a new website being developed, targeted mostly at MSM. There's a whole um, data push about making sure that condoms are out. There are a lot of, um, I've learned, my whole education has increased. There, there are all of these after hours um, clubs or parties for underaged people. There are also all these, um, sex parties, we do make condoms available for people who have sex parties. If we identify a person with syphilis and we do partner services around them, we also let them know, you know, if you're going to a sex party, tell the person who's throwing it, come get condoms beforehand. So we're trying, I'm not sure, you know, how people who distrust the medical system and distrust what we do, how much they're gonna buy into it, they, you know, they have this um, picture sometimes that we go around in these flashy, you know, marked cards. We 
don't, you know, for partner services. There's some distrust of what we do, but we're working very hard um, to sort of become part and more um, part of the population. There are places where sort of um, people go to, especially youth, it's called the attic, stuff like that. So we're working with the leaders and the people who are instrumental in those communities. Also, we've tried to do that. So within within that cohort of males that you just identified, mm -hmm. you didn't do any identification as to risk factors. I mean, you don't know what percentage MSM. You're just because you said a couple of times, well, you know, it's driven by MSM. And okay, so I don't know. I, what I know is that the syphilis is because we have risk factor data on every syphilis case because we interview. There's not. We have all of that in our database, but as a cohort, we don't know that. So you're right. And I didn't, I didn't mean to misrepresent that if I did, okay? Yes. You mentioned early on that you, one of the target high schools, uh, or sort of high risk high schools, was there, was there a large variation between like a top tier high school and low? And yes. So actually we published that data like right after. So the rates in, um, the, first of all, there were no high schools that were unaffected. There, there were chlamydia and gonorrhea cases in every high school in the city of Philadelphia, regardless of whether it was a magnet school or a, um, what do they call them? No, not a charter. There's, you know, basically the alternative to being in jail, but I can't think of it. Um, to leave, but there is a, um, there's a fancy, like, non-judgmental um, non term for those high schools. Um, what? Alternative high schools, right. But, but, but there are, right. So a lot of people, disciplinary, alternative disciplinary high schools, and they had much higher rates. Um, but community high schools had very, very high rates. I mean, community high schools in the city of Philadelphia, anybody who can get into a, a magnet school does. To, to go to a community high school in Philadelphia, it is, it is horrific. It, it really, it, it is so sad. I mean, I, I just, I, I live just outside the borders of Philadelphia, and the disparity between where I live and how public schools are funded is just um, amazing. They can barely keep their, keep their classes where if everybody, it doesn't happen because not everybody goes to class, but if everybody went to class, there'd be 40, 45 kids in a class easily. But you know, if your attendance is only 40 to 50 percent in high school, you know the class size seems normal. Well, thank you again. Thank you.